please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. You'll find the uh, notes in the uh, bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, the text for this morning is found on the back of the insert. Luke chapter 14, this will be our third and God willing final week in this extended passage. We should close out the chapter. Um, I'd like to begin by reading all 10 verses in their entirety. Um, Part of the reason we've gone so meticulously through this is this is a rather challenging um, passage. It's also themes that even though frequent in Jesus' teaching, not as frequent in our our ear and feedback. Hot mic. Hot mic. So we'll begin by reading Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Last two weeks, we've been looking at this, and a helpful way to look at this passage and, and to sort of identify its main theme is the phrase that Jesus repeats three times. At the end of verse 26, cannot be my disciple. At the end of 27, cannot be my disciple. At the end of 33, cannot be my disciple. And so what Jesus is giving here in absolute terms, the non-negotiable, is his demands of discipleship. He's got a large, large group of people following him. So the text begins, great cows accompanied him. And they're following him in a sense. And yet Jesus, we know, the reader knows, is heading to Jerusalem. And we know what he's heading to Jerusalem to do. He's already told his disciples he's heading to Jerusalem to die, to suffer to be mistreated and abused. So this crowd following him really in one sense has no idea where Jesus is going. And so I love the way Luke gives this. It's as though Jesus just stops. There's, there's no provocation, no one speaking out from the crowd. He's, he's heading to Jerusalem. He just stops and turns back and, and says to them, hey, you all, here's what it means to be my disciple. And we looked at the questions of what, is, what are we understanding these, these requirements to be? And I, and I think, we've argued, and you can go back and listen to the messages that Jesus is giving, that, that there are absolute requirements of what it means to be a Christian. There, there's no two-tier system of you're a Christian, but you're not a disciple. And in Luke's gospel, if anything, he'll warn the disciples, they may not be getting into the kingdom. 
We saw that in the Sermon on the Plain. And so we looked at the first two demands. The first, probably the hardest statement, if anyone comes after me, verse 26, and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we looked back in Genesis and saw that this phrase hate is a Hebrewism, meaning love more, love significantly more. We saw how in Genesis 29, the text said Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, And so when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he gave her conception. And so what Jesus' first demand is that that there is no competitive loves, no competitive relationships competing for your commitment, your covenant loyalty, your fidelity, your love to Christ. It's not just that Christ is first, but he's first without competition. That's the notion of hating father, mother, Son, daughter, brother, sister, even your own life. Jesus demands first place and a non-competed, non-contested first place in regards to our relationships. And that's significant because where he just came out of in Luke 14, and this helps, I think, make the context clearer, is he tells a story to the Pharisees. Remember, he was at a Pharisee's house for um, Sabbath dinner. He told them about a bunch of men who were invited to a banquet. And even though initially they had said, yes, we'll come to this banquet, when the invitation finally came out, it's time, it's time for the banquet, come now, they began to give all manner of excuses. And and the point was that when it actually came time to begin to follow, other things were more important. And the first two excuses related to property and things. I have a field I've got to go check out. I've got oxen I've got to go check out. And the third excuse was relational. I've just taken a wife. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees that because that is like them, they will not enter his kingdom. They will not taste his banquet. Well, now he's giving that same standard, those same requirements to these would-be followers. He's giving that same demand to us. He doesn't have a separate standard for the Pharisees and for the church at Martinsdale. It's the same standard. And so he says to them, your love for your wife, your love for your father, your love for your children, if, if you have to choose, you choose me. It's the same standard he held, held Abraham to when he called on him to offer up his son. It's the standard of loyalty that got the tribe of Levi their priesthood back in Exodus. We looked at that. And then second... Jesus demands of his disciples their willingness to follow him into suffering. We, we're all hardwired naturally to avoid suffering. We see suffering and move out of the way. And that's, that's natural and that's fine. Jesus is not calling on his disciples to be sadists. But he has made it clear here and elsewhere that the student will be like the teacher. And if they hate the teacher, they'll hate the student. If the world hated him, they're going to hate us. And we, we need to have our eyes wide open that following Christ will involve suffering. It will involve persecution. Paul says that clearly. And so Jesus, not into bait and switch, tells these crowds up front, this is what it means. Right now, they're following Jesus, and Jesus is popular. Right now, they're following Jesus, and there's, there's a show. There's miracles. There's signs that the real strong persecution hasn't begun yet. And so there is no cost in following Jesus at this point in the story. By the time we get into chapter 21, 22, there will be, and they will scatter. Jesus' own apostles will scatter. And so Jesus is lovingly warning them. He's warning us what it means to follow him. So we've looked at those first two demands, no greater love, no greater pleasure, that our our pursuit of Christ, we're willing, we recognize, we're willing to trust God as he brings trials 
and suffering into our life, we'll pick up our cross and not cast it off. We won't run from it. Well, now Jesus begins by linking these things together. And in one sense, all of these demands are one demand. In one sense, all of these demands are simply unpacking what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. Just as Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What does it mean to love Jesus this way? It means you love Him, number one. No other relationship compares. What does it mean to love Jesus this way? Just as He set a pattern and path for us and He suffered on our behalf, we are willing, if He leads us there, to suffer on His behalf. And now Jesus continues, and here's your first point, by telling them, telling us, you must count the cost. You must count the cost. He gives two examples. starts in verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a ta- began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to conquer and encounter, I'm sorry, another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You must count the cost. And this, is, this is, can be troubling for us because we insist, I insist, salvation is free without cost. And yet here Jesus warns these people, you need to count the cost. So how can you say salvation, the gospel is free without cost, and yet there's a cost to count? without speaking double talk. Well the, well, the way we do that is we mean different things when we talk about cost. When we insist that salvation is free and without cost, what we mean is this. What the New Testament insists is this. Christ has fully, totally, absolutely satisfied all of God's demands on our behalf. His death on the cross removes, absorbs, expiates God's wrath for us. His anger, and for all of those who are in Christ by faith, all of those who are, who are counted in Him and among His flock, they receive His righteousness. That, that there's nothing you or I contribute to that. It's free. It's completely paid for. But you can also speak of costs in another sense. And, and for those of you who have any history or any experience in business or economics, an example, um, Professor Mackey, my economics professor at Master's College, would talk of in our classes is opportunity cost. I don't know if you ever heard that expression, opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost is not just the additional cost of whatever good costs you, but it speaks of what you're not buying. So if you spend um, you know, $10 to go see a movie, you're not spending that $10 to buy lunch, right? The opportunity cost of going to the movie is whatever the material cost of the movie is, plus your time, you're not somewhere else. And to put it in the vernacular and the parlance of Jesus in here, the opportunity cost of going to the great Lord's banquet is you're not out checking your field because you can't be in two places at once, right? It's the opportunity cost. If you go to the banquet, you're not examining your oxen. If you go to your banquet, you're not at home with your wife celebrating romance. You simply can't do both. And to use the relationship of, of marriage, what's the opportunity cost of getting married? It means you're, you're, you're setting aside other 
other lovers. You're setting aside those things. It's the opportunity cost of entering into that relationship. And Jesus is making the same point here. Lest anyone think becoming a disciple of Christ, becoming a Christian is one of many things I can do, one of many lords I can follow, one of many loves that I can have. He's saying, no, 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 understand. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be reconciled with God, this is the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is there's no other competing loves. There's no other competing desires. And we'll see in a few minutes, there's no other competing possessions. You need to think that through. Is this what you want? It's free. It's freely offered. Is this really what you want? Or to use the example I gave earlier of joining the Marines, absolutely free. Costs you nothing. But the opportunity cost of joining the Marines is you will not be sitting on your couch watching TV very often, right? That's the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is you'll be picked up from here and moved over here and told what to do. And so there's all these other things you aren't doing because you're a Marine. Well, Jesus is making that clear here as well. And so he gives us two stark examples to his disciples. And he's giving us examples as well. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, if you're considering the claims of Jesus, I'd encourage you, count the cost as well. Think it through. <clears throat> Understand what a radical thing it is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives these two examples. First, counting the cost like a man preparing to build a tower. Now, in Jesus' day, towers had a number of uses. There might be one, he might be speaking of here, a tower in a, in a garden or in, in a planted agricultural area. Or this could be a tower for defense. We don't know. They were common enough in his day and expensive enough that you, you had to consider the cost. And so he pictures a man, he says, desiring to build a tower who does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So what's, what's his point? We need to consider both the start and the completion. When the bubble broke um, a couple of years ago, I, I think it began to be common to see um, homes and other places that had been set apart to build condominiums and houses left at the early stages of excavation. I certainly know when I was out in California, I saw plenty of that. You see these monuments to miscalculated costs. And there's something tragic about that, isn't there? <laughs> and, and we want to avoid that. The assumption is you don't want to do that. You don't want to sink money into a project and not be able to finish the project. So we need to consider both the start and the completion. So what does, that, what does that mean as we count the cost? It means not just looking at becoming a Christian, but, but looking at all that Jesus says will be involved in following him. Notice again that he frames this in both those terms. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me. So we're looking at conditions for coming to Jesus. But we're also looking at conditions for continuing with Jesus. 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after so in 26, coming to Jesus, which I think looks at the beginning of the relationship, 27, coming after Jesus, the continuance of the relationship. And so Jesus advises us to look at this for the long haul, especially in light of what he's going to say about salt at the end of this passage, that we consider and sit down and, and think it through. If I follow Jesus, what things won't I be doing? What things won't I be engaging in? What types of lifestyles won't I be participating in? Consider it and count the cost. Jesus encourages us to do that, to understand what we're getting into with our eyes wide open. 
Consider the start and the completion. And this is important because so often um, we, we can do evangelism in ways that try to work up an emotional response. We get the background music playing lightly just right. You know, the 32nd time of Just As I Am, you dim the lights. And the point when, when people do that is to try to create some sort of spark of, of momentary excitement. Jesus is doing the exact opposite. He doesn't want you on a whim becoming his disciple. He doesn't want you on a lark following a feeling. He wants you to understand what you're doing, to count the cost, to look it over, to understand his claims, and then willfully and with knowledge follow him. Consider the start and the completion. Also, he says, consider the shame of failing to finish. Consider the shame of failing to finish. That's what he points out when he says that, you know, when you do start to build a house or a tower and you, and you can't finish it, you've got a permanent monument and marker for everyone in the community to see as they go by. And it speaks to your lack of funds, your lack of foresight, your lack of preparation. And it becomes an object of ridicule and an object of contempt. Consider the shame of failing to finish. Probably one of the most terrible things in the New Testament is the, the account of Demas, Paul's traveling companion. In two of his letters, Demas is spoken of by Paul as sending his greetings. He's one of Paul's missionary team. He traveled with Paul. He makes it into Scripture. Demas sends his greetings. And yet in Paul's final epistle in 2 Timothy, we read these terrible words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is not remembered as the faithful friend. Demas is not remembered as Paul's missionary journeyman. Demas is the one who is forever immortalized in Holy Scripture. He's the one who loved the world more than the Lord, the one who abandoned Paul. And he becomes an object of, of a warning And we know people who've begun strong. We know people who've begun with strong professions of faith only in later years to walk away, to not finish what they start. Um, Bob Dylan, the Jewish um, folk artist, had a Jesus phase, put out a couple albums, wrote some good songs. And and if you, you interview him today, he says, yeah, that's not who I am. That's not where I'm at. You got this started tower. It was never completed. Now, we, we aren't the Lord. We don't know if perhaps the Lord will not, even in these later years, go back and gather a straying sheep and finish building the tower. But the Christian landscape is scattered with people who begin making professions and then abandon the project. And it brings ridicule. In Hebrews 11, turn, turn to Hebrews. We'll be looking at a couple passages in Hebrews this morning. The, the book of Hebrews, in many respects, is written to encourage Christians not to abandon their building project, but to finish their tower, using this metaphor. In Hebrews 11, <clears throat> the author says this, in verses 14 to 16, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He's just given us an entire list of the Old Testament men and women of faith and their faithful characters seen in the Scripture. 
If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And so what he's saying is, is Abraham, after first leaving Ur of the Chaldees, had many, many years, many, many opportunities to say, you know what, let's go back. Moses, 40 years as a shepherd after leaving the court of Pharaoh. All of these people had opportunities to return. What's the point? They persevered. They didn't stop what they began. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What's the implication? Had they turned around after putting their hand to the plow, had they turned back to their vomit like a dog, God would be ashamed to call them his own. And God never does anything shameful. So consider both the start and the finish. Consider the shame of failing to finish. Consider the reproach to the name of Christ. Consider the personal shame. That's the, that's the first example of counting the cost like a builder of a tower. The second example is to count the cost like a man preparing for war. Counting the cost like a man preparing for war. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, again, just two points here I think he's trying to make. The comparison, again, of considering to become Jesus' disciple. In the first, you're counting your money. You're making sure you can finish what you start. Here, there's two things I think you need to be prepared for the battle. You gotta be, if you're going to go fight, you've got to be ready to fight. Fair enough? You've got to have your armor on. You've got to be prepared to actively fight a battle. And if you don't want to fight a battle, if that doesn't sound interesting to you, if you don't want to risk your life, you don't go fight a battle. And the Christian life is frequently referred to in these terms. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Our walk of faith, our life of faith, Paul equates to a battle, a fight. In 2 Timothy um, 4, he, he tells us, Paul's Timothy, like a soldier, to be faithful. And to be prepared for the battle, and we need to be intent on victory. That's probably the biggest point. You don't fight battles you plan on losing. And so you size up the opposition, and you consider what it's going to take with your resources, and, and you don't fight battles you think you will lose. What do you do instead? You, you, you sue for peace. You don't fight battles you plan on losing. And so what Jesus is saying is, you, you need to look at this, and if you're not planning on by faith following me, if you're not planning on being with this for the long haul, if, you don't, if you're not planning on this, you, you don't want to start. You don't want to go to a battle that you're going to lose. Be intent on victory. And that theme of victory is picked up in the New Testament repeatedly. Listen to 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And the word translated there, overcome, is the, the Greek verb. We get the Nike, Nike shoes. It just means victory, victorious, overcoming, conquering. Everyone born of God conquers, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. A characteristic of faith 
authentic faith is it ultimately perseveres and overcomes and conquers. When Jesus writes the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, every letter ends with something like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or overcomes. Then he promises something. In Revelation 2, 7, they will eat from the tree of life. So the New Testament assumption is that genuine true faith by God's strengthening, by God's empowering, will ultimately conquer and overcome. You will win the battle. And so if you're not prepared to fight, don't, is what Jesus is saying. Don't sign up. You must count the cost like a man preparing to build a tower, like a man preparing for war. Next, verse 33. You must renounce all that you have. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I've said earlier that I think Jesus in his three demands, the three cannot be my disciple statements, is really speaking to the same thing. Coming to Christ is the end of yourself. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about self crucifixion. It's not about self-empowerment. It's about laying your life down in front of Christ. It's about saying, you're my God. You're my King. You're my Lord. You're my all in all. You are the greatest treasure. You are the greatest value. You are the most prized relationship. And nothing I have compares to you. That, that's what Jesus is saying in effect. He speaks about it relationally. He speaks about it in terms of suffering. Here he just speaks about it in everything. The Greek is literally, does not renounce or say goodbye to the things of himself for being. It doesn't really, it's not very pithy in English, but the things of yourself to be, your existence, and the things that make that happen. That's what he's saying. You must renounce those things. What's that mean? One, you must love Christ more than your possessions. The first demand, you've got to love Christ more than all other people. You've got to love Christ more than you hate suffering. Is the second. Here, you love Christ more than your stuff. And again, this goes back to the excuses offered in the parable of the banquet. Can't come now, I've got to check out my field. Can't come now, I've got to check out my oxen. And here Jesus is saying is no such excuses will fly for him in discipleship. In fact, it's kind of similar to what happened back. Turn back in Luke to chapter 9. Fifty-seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Another said, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet to another said, I will follow you, Lord. First, let me get, say farewell to those at my home. It's the same word for renounce, to say goodbye. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this is nothing new Jesus is saying. This is simply, this passage is where it's most pointed, most clear, most inescapable. This is not an obscure saying of Jesus. These demands he's been saying throughout Luke's gospel. These are demands echoed in the New Testament. You must love Christ more than your possessions. And turn out of chapter 14, he's just taught on this. If you remember, 
Actually, chapter 12, I'm sorry. Chapter 12. He's just taught on this. Remember, he was teaching about the need to, to suffer. You'll be delivered over. And then a man from the crowd speaks out in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus takes that and, and moves in that direction. And he warns him in verse 15. Take care. Be on your guard. Now that double warning suggests... This is something that can deceive us. That double warning suggests we, not suggests, commands us to be alert for one's life. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I get from that this, that you and I are prone, our hearts are prone to tell us over and over again that our belongings, our possessions, our things are our life. To lose them is to lose our life. So Jesus warns them, be on your guard, be alert. Don't, don't take the bait. Don't believe this, that your possessions, your stuff is your life. Because we are inclined to become functional atheists and materialists, and we believe getting stuff is what matters. Losing stuff is the worst thing that can happen. And so Jesus tells them and he tells us not to be anxious, not to worry. Look at verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. And he goes on to speak of the ravens and the lilies. And he brings it to a head in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that will not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is simply in line with that teaching. When I come to Christ, it's not my stuff anymore. It's not my stuff anymore. It's not your stuff. It's his stuff. We're stewards. That's the analogy he used of the servants whose master goes away and they're left in charge over portions of the master's household. And they come back and they're evaluated on their stewardship. I want to read a quote relating to this um, from uh, Edwards. This teaching is not advanced as a mythical fiction or unachievable ideal but as a genuine characteristic of knowing and loving Jesus. In some instances, one must forsake family, but in other instances, the family is brought into fellowship. In some instances, we bear one's own cross. In others, you bear the burdens of others. One must forsake all things, yet we receive all things. One must give all things to others, and yet... We are put in charge of the master's possessions. One must come to the Lord to serve him, yet the Lord also comes to the disciples and serves them. Discipleship consists of both giving and receiving. Not all are called to the same form of discipleship at all times, but whatever form the call takes, all are called to Jesus absolutely and without reserve. Discipleship cannot be an expression of mere civil religion. It does not confuse the gospel with ideologies or cultural norms, nor does it tailor the gospel to our preferences and causes or even the most noble. It is forsaking all for Jesus or attaining all and forsaking Jesus. Your possessions are not your life. 
You must love Christ more than your possessions. And these, these are the places where, where, there are tests, where our, our faith gets tested. And being faithful to Christ might cost us money, advancement in our career. And we, and we decide what we love, and we, we decide what is God, and we decide what we will serve. And what Jesus is saying is rather than deceiving yourself and then learning later in life, well, guess what? Turns out I worship stuff. It'd be better now to look it square in the face, to count the cost, and recognize that where Jesus leads us might mean the pruning of your stuff. And he's unapologetic, and he's clear. This is not a seeker-friendly message. This isn't the bait and switch. This isn't get them saved first, then tell them all what it means later. Jesus is upfront and clear. Which brings us then to the third point. You must persevere in God's grace. You must persevere in God's grace. Verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what's going on here? This is kind of an enigmatic statement. And to some of us, I'm sure, you're like, how does salt stop being salty? What's going on here? Well, I th- want to give you the basic principle is this. However it happens, and I think I have an idea what he's talking about, he's, in pic- he's picturing salt, which is useful both as a preservative and for flavor, right? We, we use salt to preserve foods, and we use salt to, to liven up the uh, flavor, or as my son might say, it needs more taste. This, this food needs more taste. You put the salt on it so it gets it more taste. Um, that's, but imagine if one day the salt you have no longer does that. What's it good for? It's good for nothing. And so the picture is someone beginning as a disciple, and they're salty. Then, somewhere along the path, they stop being salty. What, what use is such a would-be disciple? That, that's the metaphor. It's a picture of persevering. It's a picture of continuing. And that's how it fits in contextually to this. Because even though my Bible puts a new heading here, this is still part of one speech, one, one saying of Jesus. He's still talking to the crowds, following him. So the parable of salt without taste. Now, I think I have an idea of what might be going on. It's clear Jesus is picturing a scenario where what you think is salt stops being salt. And then that's weird for us because the salt we get is pure, usually 100% pure salt. But um, from what we understand of where they live, they lived near what is called the salt sea, the dead sea. And anyone of you who's ever been there knows that that is one of the saltiest, but also dense with other minerals, bodies of water in the world. Um, And so one commentator writes this, the explanation probably lies in the nature of Palestinian salt. It was obtained by evaporation from the Dead Sea. Since the water of the Dead Sea contains various substances, evaporation produced a mixture of crystals of common salt and carnalite. And since the former crystals crystallize, since the former crystallizes out first, it's possible to collect relatively pure salt by fractional collection of the first crystals. So he's saying basically is the salt in the water would crystallize first, and so if you know what you're doing, you can get the salt out of the evaporated water without getting all the other minerals and content. However, um, 
It would be easy to mistake the crystals of bitter tasting carnalite for salt, especially if contaminated with fine clay, etc., which would produce a stale taste. Carnalite or gypsum, out of which the salt content had been dissolved away, would be salt that had become tasteless. So in other words, you might buy a bag of salt, and their salt probably wasn't as pure as ours. And so there's a mixture in your salt of salt and carnalite and gypsum. Well, if you got that wet, if it got moist, the salt would, would evaporate away. And what would you be left with? You'd be left with a carnalite. You'd be left with some sour, bitter-tasting minerals. I think something like that is what Jesus has in mind, a scenario like that. What exactly it is, we don't know. But here's one possible explanation. of You've got a bag of salt. You buy it from a merchant, and initially it's good, and you get, let it get wet. And one day you come to use your salt, and ooh, it's nasty. Well, what do you do with that? Well, you, you don't put it in the manure pile. It's not going to be good for that. It's not going to be good for the ground. You throw it away. It's useless. And that's the first point. Salt without taste is useless. It is useless. Turn back to chapter 8. Jesus ties this saying with the salts to chapter 8 with his expression at the end, he was ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll, we'll pick that up as we get to it, but... In chapter 8, we find the parable of the sower, which I think is, is instructive, very similar in its theme. If you remember, the sower threw seed on four types of soil. The first was hard-packed soil, no response. But in the second and third soils, there is what appears to be a response. Verses, um, let's pick it up in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes along and takes the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones along the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. They seem salty enough, and then they aren't. As for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Notice the similarity of themes. What, what kills the first one? Persecution and suffering. Jesus says, you've got to be willing to pick up your cross and follow me. What kills the second one? P stuff, possessions, the things of this world choke it out. As for that which fell on good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Only one of these soils bears fruit. Only one of these plants is useful for anything. That's the point. Salt without taste is useless. Salt without taste, next, is thrown away. Here's, here's I think, the point. This will be hard to hear. What do we make of people who make a profession of faith and appear initially at least to genuinely bear fruit. They're salty. Bob Dylan or others, probably people you know, who later lose their salt. They later, they're unwilling to suffer. They're unwilling to compromise their relationships. They're unwilling to forego their stuff. And they stop functionally following Jesus. What do we make of those? What will happen to such people? I think Jesus is saying here they'll be cast away. And I think the New Testament regularly makes that point clear. This gets back to the, the, the heading of this point. We must persevere in God's grace. The New Testament is emphatic that genuine faith will persevere. It conquers. It overcomes. We must persevere in 
faith. Go to chapter 12. Where Jesus makes this point clearly. Verses 8 and 9. Again, this is no new teaching in Luke. It's just focused and emphasized and unavoidable. In chapter 12, and again, he's speaking to the crowds. He says this, I tell you, verse 8, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So Jesus pictures uh, him standing in heaven with the angels around, and the question is asked, is this one of yours? Is this one of your sheep? Is this one for whom you died? And Jesus said he will reciprocate our confession of him in heaven. And so the one who in persecution denies, ultimately, will be denied. Now that's not a one-for-one, you ever deny Jesus, you're lost, because we know Peter denies Jesus. But if you ultimately lose your saltiness, you were never salt. Listen to uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting and our hope. Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now He doesn't say you, you, you become a Christian if you make it to the end. He says you did become a Christian. If you make it to the end, what's the implication? If you don't make it to the end, you didn't become. You didn't lose your salvation. You never were. Or even, uh, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Again, this is no minor teaching in the New Testament. It's just something we can pass over. First Corinthians 15. And he's going to give them the gospel. This is a great summary passage for the gospel. What is the gospel? What are the facts on the ground of the gospel? 15.1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What's the implication? Don't hold fast. You had vain faith. You lose your salvation. You're being saved if you hold fast. Not you're being saved and then you stop being saved. You're being saved if you hold fast. If you don't hold fast, you believed in vain. Then he goes on to say, for I delivered to you for first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, back to Luke. 14. Now at this point, um, hearing this sober word, we might think so. Now it really sounds like works are brought in because you, you got to be, you got to make it to the end. You got to be faithful. And I think Jesus' final phrase, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear," gives us both words of encouragement and hope, and clarifies that no, this isn't something about human work, merit, or effort. We need God's sovereign grace. We need God's sovereign grace. Why do I say that? Because the first and last time that he used this phrase, he was ears to hear, let him hear. Back in chapter 8, turn there, Luke 8. He explains what he means by it. And the first time in Luke's gospel when Jesus says this is in Luke 8.8. 8. 
As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that confused his disciples. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So what does Jesus mean when he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear? He says right there, here's what he means. There are some... God gives the grace to hear and receive and understand and not choke on what he says. And he identifies his disciples as those who've been given that gift. And so when he says the same thing here in our passage, he means the same thing. I've got a hard word for you, he says, but there are going to be some of you who because of God's grace has given you ears to hear and he's given you eyes to see. You will hear this and you will not choke on it. He's saying, in other words, the ability to receive this word is a gift of grace. Point I here. Only God gives ears to hear. Only God gives ears to hear. In fact, he made the same point in chapter 10. Turn to chapter 10. This was the passage when we studied it that set up um, our series on election predestination. As we were going through this, we had enough questions in the discussion time afterwards that it seemed good to pause and talk about it. But in Luke 10, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It's clear here. The revelation of the Son, understanding, seeing with spiritual eyes who Jesus is, is a gift of God. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes, and see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what's the point? Jesus says in one saying, you need to finish what you start. You need to conquer the battle. You need to stay salty. And yet in closing with that call, to he was ears to hear, let him hear, he's letting it know that that ability to hear and by implication that ability to persevere is a gift of God's grace. If you or I finish faithfully, it's not because I worked hard enough and mustered up within myself enough grit to do it. It's because my shepherd held me. It's because the good shepherd... Look at how 15 goes. Look, look at chapter 15 to make this point even more clear. What is? What does it look like when someone doesn't stumble over what Jesus has just said but receives it? Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we have the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and they are alike the joy of heaven over a sinner who repents. And so in both parables, and we'll dive into these next week, so I don't want to steal too much thunder from it, we see two things. We see something lost that is found, and then we see rejoicing at its finding, right? And so the, the rejoicing is like heaven's joy. But as Jesus frames this, the finding is like the repentance, right? So, so a sheep being found by a shepherd is like a sinner repenting. 
A coin being found by its owner is like a sinner repenting. In this parable, does the sheep do the seeking? Does the coin do the finding? No. So even in these two parables we're about to look at that tell us this is what it's like, heaven's joy over a sinner repenting. We see God's initiative. We see God's actively searching out. When somebody hears Jesus' words, that's how this begins, 15.1, the connecting thought, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So they're hearing this hard demand, and they're coming. They, they have ears to hear. They have eyes to see. The Pharisees grumble and get mad. Let me, let me tell you how to understand what's going on. These sinners who are repenting are a great cause of joy for heaven. It's like a shepherd who lost his one sheep and went out and found it. These, these tax collectors and sinners who are coming to me are really people who are being found by God. God, point two here, grants repentance and faith. God grants repentance and faith. You see, the gospel supplies what it demands. It calls for faith and it gives faith. God supplies what he demands. Only God grants repentance and faith. These sinners repenting are like a sheep who a shepherd searched for and found. They're like a coin that a woman searched for and found. Turn turn to Acts 11. Luke is not in any way ashamed of highlighting the sovereignty of God and salvation. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life." We must persevere, but we persevere in God's grace. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and as we do, I want to read one last passage to you from First Peter. We we must. Jesus is insistent. We must remain salty. We must persevere. We must finish. We must complete our tower. We must conquer in the battle. But we learn that when we do, it is only because of God's grace. It's only because of His enabling. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not by our own determination and grit, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time who are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation to reveal the last time. And I'd ask you now to stand and join us as we sing. He will hold me fast. If you are a person here today of faith, your confidence, my confidence doesn't rest in my ability, my tenacity, my effort. And there will be effort. But ultimately, in our shepherd's promise that he will leave the flock and search out the lost. He will bring us home. He will guard us through faith. Let's sing.